I am joined by Richard Silla, Emeritus Professor of Finance and Economics at NYU. Professor, welcome to Forward Guidance. It's an honor to have you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Jack. Professor, for people who don't know, you are a tr true expert on interest rates and the history of interest rates. You actually co-wrote sort of what is the Bible on interest rates called A History of, of Interest Rates. So I'm, I'm extremely glad uh, for, for you to be here. You, you've traced interest rates basically from the beginning in Mesopotamia all the way to the present day. So my first question for you, Professor, is about the surge in interest rates that we've seen over the past year and, and your thoughts on them. A little over a year ago, short-term interest rates were at zero, and now they're at 4.75%. To some, that seems extreme. Is it actually extreme? I wouldn't say it was extreme at all. I mean, I think 4.75% interest on uh, government uh, bonds of uh, various maturities uh, would have been considered to be kind of normal in the 1960s, you know, like 50, 60 years ago. Uh, they were uh, they had come up from low levels uh, in World War II, but you know they got to be normal by the early to mid 1960s. And so, in my view, I mean, uh, th this is part of a normalization process. Uh, we we got through a period, as in World War II, where government authorities uh, suppressed interest rates. You might say, uh, in World War II, the reason was to keep the cost of financing the war down for the government. Uh, more recently, it was in the aftermath of the 2007 to 9 finan global financial crisis, and th th there was a slow recovery from that, and the monetary authorities uh, suppressed interest rates uh, in order to encourage a, uh, what turned out to be, I would say, a modest recovery, not a ripery recovery, but a modest recovery. And they pushed interest rates very low, and now we're seeing something, uh, you know, the impetus was an outbreak of inflation in the wake of the uh, printing of money during COVID. Uh, uh, the inflation uh, picked up and, and it was more than was expected. And, and so the Federal Reserve now is, you know, it's doing what it's done in the past. Uh, uh, it's raising interest rates to fight inflation. Uh, but I view it in longer term, since I've looked at, as you mentioned, four or 5,000 years of interest rates, that this is really, you know, there's always some specific reason why something's going on at a particular time like now, uh, but really uh, it's probably more of a normalization of interest rates. And does it remind you of any particular period, the real surge in interest rates? A lot of your book, it's, okay, interest rates were on a secular rise or a secular fall, but it happened rather slowly. But over a year, so so many hikes, is is that uh, normal? Like uh, what? when's the last time that's happened? Uh, I would say that uh, if you look back to, to um, the 2003 to 2006, uh, and that's not very long ago. That's less than two decades ago. Uh, or it is start the 2003 is exactly two decades ago, and it was right about this time where I think it was in. Uh, I recall from the book that uh, when I did the last edition of it, which was I think a 2005 edition. Um, the long, uh, the ten-year government bond, the sort of benchmark bond, its average yield during the month of May of uh, 2003 was 3.33 percent. Uh, and uh, uh, what happened then is that the there was a recovery from the dot-com bubble and the uh, 
the Fed was a little bit worried about inflation, and so it began a series of interest rate increases. I think it was in 2004 they started, and basically they raised 25 basis points every meeting. They, they, they started from a 1% interest rate, not quite zero. We got down to zero, but you know, 25 basis points every meeting, and that went on until we got somewhere between 5 and 6%, 5 and a quarter. So every every six weeks when the Fed met, they raised uh, uh, their benchmark rate um, 25 basis points. And it was like, it looked like a stairway. If you look at it on a chart, it's like a stairway. You're going up the stairs from 2003 to 2006, and, uh, or 2004 really, to 2006. And that's sort of what they're doing now, except they've had some more dramatic increases of 50 basis points and a couple of 75 basis points. So they're doing, they're climbing the stairs a little faster now and the stairs are a little uneven. You know, sometimes it's a short stair, 25 basis points. Other times it's longer stairs, uh, higher stairs of 50 and 75 basis points. But, you know, if that's just two decades ago. So there's nothing unprecedented about what they're doing right now. Professor, how responsible for the turmoil in the banking system right now is some U.S. regional banks having failed, being taken over by the FDIC? Sort of how responsible is the rather rapid rise in interest rates that we've seen over the the past year. Well, I think it has a lot to do with it because the uh uh you know rising interest rates reduce the value of fixed income assets and uh so in the case of the most prominent uh, failure so far, I guess Silicon Valley Bank, uh they booked a big loss on their portfolio of treasury securities that they had bought at very low interest rates and when interest rates went up the market value of those securities went down. And um, I think at the beginning of the year, uh, they had taken a $15 billion loss on their portfolio of treasury securities, but the capital of the bank was only 16 billion. So that's, uh, you know, in other words, the decline in the value of their treasury securities had almost wiped out their capital. It took a couple months before the depositors of the bank to realize that that bank was skating on thin ice. But when they did, they ran on the bank and uh, the FDIC had to swoop in and take them over. They just could not liquidate the securities fast enough uh, or at decent values. And so they were technically bankrupt. Mm. And what the, the Federal Reserve's facility bank term funding program where it extends loans of up to one year at par. So if a security went from $100 to $85, the Federal Reserve will lend $100 against it, not $85. Some are calling that unprecedented, but I know you've done a lot of work that may challenge that. What what is it is it really unprecedented? No, it's not unprecedented at all. In fact, the, the, we saw something very much akin to this at the beginning of US history and what I call Wall Street's first crash in 1792. Uh, uh there's a, a large backstory to that. We can get into it if you want, but you know the financial system was sort of brand new then. It, it was kind of the new thing, like dot com companies or <laughs> non fungible tokens or uh, cryptocurrencies. The financial system itself in the United States was new, and it only took a couple of years before massive speculation took place and uh, the value of the government that went uh, soaring up, and then. Uh, uh, some speculators failed, and there was a, a run uh, on, not so much a run on, uh, basically people were dumping their securities on the market at fire sale prices. And Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury, who was responsible for the financial reforms, came up with a brilliant idea, told the Bank of New York to tell the brokers of New York City 
not to dump their bonds on the market at fire sale prices, but bring them to the bank as collateral. And Hamilton named the prices uh, that the bank should accept them as collateral. Uh, you talked about the uh, uh, authorities today saying take those government bonds at par value. Well, Hamilton, the main government security was a 6% bond, and Hamilton told the Bank of New York, take it as collateral at, at par value and make loans on that basis. And the idea is then the um, uh, the brokers use the loans to uh, pay their engagements with other brokers and their clients instead of dumping the securities on the market. And Hamilton's plan was adopted, and the crisis uh, uh, went away fairly quickly. If we're lucky this time, we'll be so lucky. But that's what 230 years ago, uh, 231 years ago to be precise, uh, and it was the same thing that the authorities did in 2023. It was done in, 20, in uh, uh, 1792. And that, to my mind, is, is what's fascinating about financial history. You see the same things over and over uh, to people living at a certain time and not used to have financial crisis, everything seems unprecedented. You know, can they really do this? Uh, this this is impossible. This has never been done before. If you know financial history, almost everything we do now has been done before. Right now, the the Federal Reserve's official mandate is a dual one: to price stability, so so low inflation, and a stable labor market. What was the first bank of the United States started by Alexander Hamilton? What was the mandate there? Why? What was the official reason that that bank needed to exist, according to Hamilton? Oh, the first central bank. Well, Hamilton had noticed, he was a student of financial history himself, and he noticed that the Dutch had a big bank called the Bank of Amsterdam that was uh, at the very center of Dutch finance. And he also noticed, and that bank dated back to 1609, he also noticed that in 1694, England founded the Bank of England. And England, of course, then went on to become a stable financial country and, and a great power in the world. Uh, so Hamilton, being a student of history, uh, said that the, uh, you know, especially the model of the Bank of England, which uh, did a lot of private business, but it also did a lot of government business. Hamilton thought that the United States would be a stronger country, uh, that the federal government would be stronger, and the economy would be stronger if we had a similar bank. And in some ways, he took over features of the Bank of England. He allowed government debt to be used uh, to buy stock in the bank. That's exactly what uh, the Bank of England uh, financing, initial financing was. Uh, Hamilton introduced some innovations, however. He, he, he allowed his bank to have branches around the country, and um, he allowed the government not to, uh, uh, to have an ownership stake in the bank. The Bank of England was entirely privately owned. The Bank of Amsterdam was owned by the city of Amsterdam. So the government owned the Amsterdam Bank. The Bank of England was privately owned. Hamilton had a hybrid. Uh, the U.S. government took a 20% position in the bank, and private investors bought the other 80%. And his argument was that you know tax revenues might not be coming in as fast as the government needed to spend money, so it could take out a short-term loan from the Bank of the United States. But he also felt the Bank of the United States would, uh, well, it would be a model for the states to create banks. Uh, but it would do a private business, uh, you know, making loans to merchants and uh, other business people and uh, you know, very short term loans, usually discounts. And uh, so it was just a, a plus for the economy. And, you know, the the re the records we have of its history is that it was a, a very well managed institution and did a lot for the economy. Um, it was unpopular politically, though, uh, because 
by 20, it had a 20 year charter started in 1791. So in 1811, its charter from Congress would expire. And uh, by that time, uh, the Jeffersonians were in power. Madison was actually the president. Albert Gallatin was the secretary of the treasury. Uh, Gallatin very much wanted a renewal of the charter because he thought Hamilton was right. The bank was, did a lot of service for the government. Uh, but by that time, you had 100 or so state banks, and they lobbied their congressmen not to renew the charter of the Bank of the United States because I've explained it was a triple win situation. Uh, if the Bank of the United States was not renewed, uh, the uh, state banks would get rid of a competitor they would get rid of a regulator, and they would get the government's banking business. So, so the banks, the state banks, basically lobbied Congress. Uh, you know, it failed by the slimmest of margins. It was one of these votes, like we've seen lately, where the vice president of the United States had there was a tie in the Senate, and the vice president, who was an old political enemy of Hamilton, as he was uh, former New York Governor George Clinton, vice president of the U.S., he, he cast the vote against the bank, so it failed by one vote to be renewed, uh, and. Uh, Unfortunately, we had the War of 1812 following fast on the heels of this, uh, and the government's finances were rather embarrassed. And, and so the first thing they did after the War of 1812 was over was to found a second bank of the United States. You know, some of the bank's old enemies realized it was important, but that one ran into trouble 20 years later with Andrew Jackson. So the, the Federal Reserve's uh, mandate towards low inflation and, and stable labor markets that really came in with Volcker in the late 1970s, who raised interest rates to an extraordinary level. First of all, I want to ask when when that happened, were you surprised at how interest how high interest rates was? And you know, like now, but you know, back then you also knew all about financial history in the 1800s and way before then. So, did it strike you as wow, this is some of the highest rates in in history? Well, they were the highest rates in U.S. history. I mean, you had 14, 15 percent. Uh, yields on 20-year government bonds. You had 18, 19% intra, uh, mortgage uh, interest rates. Uh, I think uh, the bank's prime interest rate got to be above 20% for a while in 1981. Uh, and these, you know, those rates had never been seen before in American history. I mean, think about it today. Today, we're thinking uh, you're getting a pretty good deal on a government bond that yields three and a half or four and a half, it's 4%. And then you know you could get a government bond that yielded fifteen uh, percent or you know fourteen. I, you know, I bought some for my mother for fourteen and a quarter percent. Uh, Good trade. And then of course, <laughs> yeah, when interest rates went down, those bonds nearly doubled in value. You know, they were twenty-year bonds; they couldn't be called for fifteen or twenty years. And and uh, uh, so when interest rates came down as a result of Volcker's policies. Uh, you know, he he broke the back of the inflation. That the and inflation was the cause of those high interest rates. Uh, Volcker changed the way the Fed operated. Of course, he uh, the Fed had uh, focused its attention in the 1970s on interest rates, and Volcker decided to focus more on monetary aggregates. And so, you might say that he got control of the money supply, but by reducing its rapid rate of growth, interest rates went through the roof, and we had a pretty serious recession. But we did get rid of that inflation. Uh, I mean, that inflation rate was among the highest in U.S. history too. The you know more than in, I think in 1979 to 81, people are worried about inflation now. But in 1979 to 81, the peak years of the inflation of the 1970s, um, 
the interest rates were double digits, you know, 10, 11, 12. I mean, the, not the interest rates, the inflation rate mm -hmm. was 10, 11, 12%. Higher, much higher than anything we see in this latest episode of inflation. Right. Professor, I've heard that before. Volcker targeted the level of money rather than the price of money, interest rates. I've heard that before, but I never really understood it. Could you explain for me and, and our audience what that actually means and why it's significant? Before this interview, I just was reading how uh, you know, interest rates went from 10% to 8% in one month, then up to 17%, then back to 11%, then up to 19%, and extremely volatile, makes the volatility of interest rate volatility of the past year look look like nothing. So why was that policy so significant? And could you explain for, for me and my audience, just when you say the money supply, are we talking the money in banks, deposits, uh, reserves? What, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the, the the money of the economy, which was you know the currency and and uh, in those days we say currency and bank deposits. Uh, and I think one of the backstories there is that uh, a famous economist named Milton Friedman, uh, and sometimes with collaborators, had done a lot of research showing that uh, it, through U.S. history from the Civil War to the 1960s, um, the the he measured the money supply, and then he showed that it had a high uh, correlation with what was going on in the economy in terms of inflation and so on. Uh, and so he kind of switched thinking from the, the Keynesian idea was that uh, interest rates mattered and you could uh, you know, get people to buy houses if you reduced interest rates or you could get them to slow down their purchases if you raised interest rates. Uh, and so you controlled the um, basically the ups and downs of the economy, you modified them by moving interest rates up and down, and that's what central banks were supposed to do. Milton Friedman focused more on money, and I think he, it's fair to say that in the 1960s and 70s, Friedman got more and more adherence, and the Keynesians focusing on interest rates uh, because of the inflation of the 70s got less and less uh, uh, backing. And Volcker was aware of all this. He was, this was in uh, his mid-career. And uh, he decided that let's try, you know, a sort of version of Milton Friedman. Let's uh, focus on controlling the money supply instead of interest rates. And we'll let interest rates go where they will. And, of course, they went through the roof. Uh, but that ended the inflation rather more quickly than uh, most economists expected at the time. Even Milton Friedman was surprised by how quickly prices, uh, the inflation rates came down in the early to mid-1970s. Uh, so, I, it, you know, there is two sides of the coin. Uh, if you focus on interest rates, there will be some monetary effects of that. Uh, you know, if you push interest rates down, the uh, people will borrow more and the money supply should grow. Um, if you push interest rates up, people will borrow less of the money. The banks sort of create money when they make loans to people and the people take fewer loans at higher interest rates, so the money supply grows, grows more slowly. Uh, but there are two ways of looking at it. I, I must say we've gotten back to focusing on interest rates, and that may have been part of the problem in our current inflation. Because what I noticed in 20, uh, late 2020 and 2021, uh, what was going on at the Federal Reserve was uh, the money supply of the United States through their low interest rate policies, and their, we have to talk about the fiscal policies of the government mailing out checks to people too. Basically, the Federal Reserve printed the money and the government mailed it out to people and the money stock was growing at 20 or 30%. And I knew from you know, long history that the, the, if your money grows at 20 to 30%, inflation rises won't be far behind. And that's what exactly what happened. And uh, uh, 
it turned out, you know, initially they said, oh, this is transitory inflation. It has to do with supply uh, uh, problems and uh, uh, those, will, those will remedy themselves and the inflation rate will come down. But you know, it didn't take long before the Fed realized it wasn't so transitory. And I think that's because they created so much money. So I think it's fair to say, and I think history will say, that the Fed and fiscal policy, fiscal and monetary policies caused the inflation. And now they're being reversed, or at least monetary policies being reversed to uh, uh, cut down on the inflation in the same way Volcker did in 1979 to 82. Can you differentiate how the money printing over the past, let's say, three years uh, caused a lot of inflation as, as you see it? Differentiate that from the quantitative easing that occurred after the 2008 financial crisis, which caused uh, aggregate monetary aggregates, uh, levels of reserves in the banking system, XX reserves to swell. And many folks anticipated inflation, but the, the inflation sort of never came. And I suppose the ultimate example of that would be the Bank of Japan, where interest rates are at zero and the balance sheet is huge, but inflation is is very moderate, even, even, even now. What is sort of the difference between that? Well, I think the in the you know we had a major financial crisis from 2007 to 2009, and I think what happened then the Federal Reserve you know fought the uh, uh, the economic fallout, the Great Recession we called it. I mean, the financial crisis led to what was called the Great Recession with rising unemployment. Uh, the Federal Reserve fought that by um, uh, buying a lot of government bonds and mortgage-backed securities, but. That money was basically held by the banks. You know, they, they didn't. Uh, you know, the, their reserves went from a, you know what seemed to be a very low level of you know fifty, say fifty billion dollars, uh, to two thousand billion. You know, two trillion uh, and and more later on, uh, as the Federal Reserve bought up these securities. You know, the the checks that paid for those securities got deposited in the banks, and bank reserves went through the roof. The reason that didn't cause inflation is that the banks held those reserves uh, and the Fed began to pay interest on them. So the banks thought, and I was reminded of the 1930s. One of the problems of the 1930s is that the United States banking system, the bankers of the country were shell-shocked by the, all the bank failures of 1930 to 33. And uh, uh, the Federal Reserve adopted policies of uh, uh, adding to the buying securities and uh, uh, but the banks didn't make more loans you know they held excess reserves i think they were shell-shocked by what had happened they were cautious about making uh loans and uh, uh so uh, that that particular crisis the federal reserve you know acted dramatically but by creating a lot of bank reserves but the banks held the reserves i think what happened in 2020 is that when the uh, Federal Reserve uh, did the same thing, it, it bought a lot of government securities that went into bank reserves and the banks started lending them out. And, and so you got, in other words, the money supply grew in 2020, 2021, 2022 at very high rates because of uh, uh, the liquidity of the reserves that the Fed had created. But in 2008, 9, and 10, and 11, the banks were reluctant to, you know, they had been burned by the crisis. And so as in the 1930s, they uh, held the reserves and didn't make a lot of loans. So that's the big difference. You know, the question is, are the banks willing to lend? In 2009, 10, 11, 12, they were reluctant to lend. They, they felt comfortable holding excess reserves. The same thing happened in the 1930s. 
but because we had a decade of fairly you know, moderate economic growth by 2020, the banks, when they got more reserves, they started lending them out and the money supply grew rapidly. Uh, Chairman Paul Volcker, who assumed the chairmanship of the Federal Reserve, I think in 1979, you knew, knew Paul Volcker. Can you outline just his tenure at the Federal Reserve and how there were different phases? I think first he, he jacked up interest rates dr drastically and inflation fell a little bit, but then interest rates fell back down sort of against his will. Can you just tell us a little bit about that that period and uh, yeah, w w what it was like? Well, I, um, I'm i not sure that interest rates went down against his will. I mean, I, I think uh, basically he sponsored the, the uh, policies that led to the highest interest rates in U.S. history. Uh, uh, and... Uh, and that was part of his plan, I think, that, uh, you know, to let the rates go up and break the back of the inflation. And um, he started those policies in 1979, shortly after he came into the Federal Reserve. Uh, and uh, uh, basically that the, uh, there was a bit of a recession in 1980. And 1980 was an election year. Uh, but Jimmy Carter had appointed Paul Volcker, and, and Volcker's policies probably weren't the best for Jimmy Carter's re-election prospects. But uh, the uh, Reagan won the election that year, and Volcker, you know, kept at his high interest policies. I mean, the peak didn't come till 1981, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, then 1981-82, there was a you know a pretty bad recession. Uh, unemployment rate got up to ten uh, percent. By uh, some in some months, by late 1982, uh, worse than anything we've seen uh, lately. Um, although I guess it got close to that in 2009, uh, that recession. Um, so interest rates went up. We had a pretty severe recession. They, they, at the time, 1981-82 recession was called the worst since the Great Depression, uh, and it was. Um, but then you know the high interest rate policy of Volcker uh, by focusing on monetary aggregates, the inflation rate started coming down in, in 1982 and the Fed reversed course at ease policy. Uh, an interesting thing, you know, you mentioned that I knew Volcker pretty well and he taught with me in a course at NYU when he was a visiting professor. Um, 1982 was the mid-year midterm elections and all of Ronald Reagan's advisors uh, that told him to I get tough with the Fed and blame the, you know, and the unemployment rate was getting up to 10%. Uh, Reagan's advisors told him to, you've got to get tough with the Fed and blame the Fed. And Volcker told me that Reagan refused to do that. Uh, and he didn't have the greatest understanding in the world of monetary policy, but he knew that inflation was bad for the economy. And so Reagan apparently told his advisors, no, Chairman Volcker and I believe that inflation is bad for the economy, so I'm not going to do what you're telling me to do. I'm going to support uh, Paul Volcker at the Fed. And he did, and uh, 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 the inflation rate came down. Uh, and the 1980s were the start of the, you know, the great bull market in stocks that peaked out around 1999-2000, the dot-com bubble. Um, interest rates uh, came down. It took, it took a long time. I mean... In the early 1990s, a decade after Volcker had uh, uh, broken the back of the inflation, I mean, it was six, seven, eight percent interest rates were still pretty common, much higher than we got used to. I would say it wasn't until about the mid 1990s, and Greenspan was running the Fed then, 
and that we we got back to sort of normal interest rates and and the uh, federal reserve was uh, uh regained credibility it re- regained the credibility that it had lost in the 1970s hey there sorry to interrupt announcement blockworks is hosting an event called permissionless in september it's a crypto event it's in austin texas We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, Lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Professor, right now with you know some banks ex- experiencing some issues, people are finger pointing at the interest rate hikes of the Federal Reserve, the rapid surge in in yields, and saying that is the cause of it. And these rate hikes are unsustainable. What does your reading say about the level, how uh, you know, whether certain levels of, of yields are unsustainable? If, if Volcker kept interest rates at 17%, I mean, would that have been sustainable? Also, to what degree does that depend on the level of debt? You know, there are folks who say, Sure, Volcker could have raised interest rates to 15, 16%, but Jay Powell can never do that because there's too much debt. To what degree do you think that is true? Well, I think uh, the Fed is, you might say, is between a rock and a hard place now. I mean, it, it has to fight inflation, but now uh, in the last month or so, we've developed the banking and financial system problems. So the Fed would like to uh, continue with its anti-inflation policy by maybe having a few more... Uh, maybe more moderate, you know, 25 basis points, not not 50 or 75, um, uh, because it thinks it hasn't really won the war on inflation yet. Uh, but now with the banking problems coming up because of the rising interest rate policies of the Fed, it has to worry about financial stability. Uh, and a lot of banks are in the same position as Silicon Valley Bank. They've taken a beating on their portfolios of marketable securities. Uh, so the Fed you know, wants to continue the war on inflation, but at the same time, it has to be asking itself, we got to be careful because if we uh, aren't careful, uh, there'll be more bank failures. And uh, so I, I think uh, it's it's in a pickle uh, of its own making in mm-hmm. a sense. Uh, uh, and we'll, we'll just have to see how they handle it. So far, I think they've done a pretty good job, but, um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank was not the only bank to have the... Uh, problems. Uh, the other ones have the problem. You know, the, they did guarantee all the deposits. Uh, there's a question that's going around now. It, it, is that going to be extended to the whole banking system mm-hmm. or was it just a special case of Silicon Valley and Signature Bank? Uh, well, it, we'll have to see. I mean, I think the Fed is sitting around probably right now, somebody at the uh, headquarters in uh, Washington, D.C. They're, they're sort of asking themselves, uh, you know, can we guarantee all the deposits of the banking system? There's a lot of moral hazard in that because you're just, you know, the politicians will start talking about the, you know, the government and the banks. The government just bails out the banks and lets lets the rest of us be unemployed. 
Um, we saw that in 2009 and 10, uh, and there was a bit of a backlash about it. So the American public is not very fond of uh, rich bankers being bailed out by the gov federal government. No, not at all. I know during the 80s and 90s, there was a savings and loans crisis where lots of uh, very s small banks had a lot of issues. You know, some of them went under. How related- A was lot of them did. <laughs> what did you say? I said a lot of them did, not just some. Oh, did, a, lot, a, lot a lot of them. them. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. How connected? What was the cause of that? How much did that have to do with interest rate volatility and, and the, the rapid surge in rates of 1980, 81? Oh, it, it had, uh, you know, I mean, it was the same thing that's going on now. The, the rise in interest rates uh, uh, technically bankrupted most of the uh, country's savings and loans by 1980 or 81, the peak, when the peak interest rates came in. Uh, there were all these savings and loans that back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s had made mortgage loans at much lower interest rates. Those mortgage loans were, uh, with when interest rates were very high, the, the savings and loans had to pay their depositors more, but they were earning less on their portfolio of old mortgages. And uh, Franco Modigliani, who was an MIT economics professor, I was at a conference with him in the, around 1981, he said, basically, all the savings and loans of the country, or almost all of them, are bankrupt right now. They should be shut down. And if the government doesn't do it, it'll just be a bigger problem later on. Well, the government did not do it in 1980-81. Instead, it relaxed the regulations of savings and loans and gave them some money, allowed them to invest uh, in a wider range of security. You know, the idea was, we'll let them uh, take more risk, and therefore, they will earn higher returns, and uh, they'll... Uh, become less bankrupt than they were, <laughs> and maybe, maybe even become solvent again. So uh, Congress did the wrong thing. It, it uh, uh, should have shut down the savings and loans of the authorities, should have shut them down in 1980-81, and the loss might have been, uh, you know, 10 or 20 billion uh, to the FDIC or this FISLIC, the Savings and Loan in Insurance Corporation. There was a, uh, that's not around anymore, but um, uh, there was a separate insurance agency for savings and loans. Uh, so FISLIC might have lost $20 billion. Uh, instead, they let the savings and loans uh, take on more risk in the 1980s. And by the end of the 80s, uh, uh, they, they were failing right and left. You know, things didn't work out for them. And so the uh, uh, many of the savings and loans were absorbed into banks. And, uh, and basically, there's not much difference between uh, uh, a bank and a savings and loan uh, anymore. And uh, uh, so they all failed. And instead of costing, you know, 10 or 20 billion, it ended up costing taxpayers 120 billion, uh, where the government had to, you know, basically shut down the savings and loans, auction off their assets, which they did in the early 1990s. Most of the savings and loans were absorbed into banks and so on. Uh, uh, and so we got through the crisis, but it was costly. Uh, but the, the cause of it was exactly what's going on now. Rising interest rates reduce the value of the uh, earning assets of the financial institutions. They were mostly mortgages for savings and loans. And uh, uh, basically, their assets got to be worth less than their liabilities. So they were uh, bankrupt and should have been shut down. But uh, they weren't shut down. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were shut down. I just wonder whether there are more banks that are going to be like them. I mean, they certainly weren't the only ones experiencing the problem. 
Right, but it, they were shut down not because regulators were necessarily getting ahead. They were shut down because venture capitalists were withdrawing, you know, tens of billions of dollars well, right. per day. It so it was, they had they had to, right? Uh, right. I mean, they, they basically they were asked to, uh, you know, give the money back to their depositors, and, and they didn't have the money to do it. And if they had dumped their securities on the market at fire sale prices, they would have been even less able to do it. So things were happening very quickly, and uh, uh, the authorities swooped in and took over the bank and, and told the depositors that, you know, you'll be made safe. I mean, in a sense, uh, they failed, you know, had, had, had some other bank failed, Silicon Valley Bank might have gotten the guarantees from the government a week later and survived. Uh, so, but things happen very quickly in financial crisis. You, you work hard to build up a business for a long time and you think it's going well, it can collapse on you very quickly. That's another lesson of financial history. And it's basically because all banks are highly levered. You know, they have uh, a rather thin margin of capital behind their balance sheets. And if something on the asset side goes down in value, the capital position of a bank can disappear very, very quickly. That's what happened to a lot of very big banks in, in 19, uh, no, in 2008 uh, and 2009. And a lot of them failed. Washington Mutual, you know, that was a, a big failure. Uh, Wachovia failed. They were absorbed into bigger banks. But the, the same thing, rising interest rates, reducing the value of their uh, assets. And uh, uh, basically, they, you know, they had to be taken over and merged with other banks. Right, and I see Silicon Valley Bank was just merged this this week with the First Citizens Bank of North Carolina. Yep, and that stock rallied, I think, something like fifty or sixty percent uh, the, the day the news was announced yesterday. Um, so, so the, the rapid rise in interest rates in the nineteen eighty eighty one that caused a collapse in the value of the duration sensitive mortgages assets that were on the balance sheets of the savings and loans. It was kind of swept under the rug. It wasn't realized until later in the 80s, even in the 19, or 1990s, these things were, were still failing. Um, I want to ask you, though, was the actual cause of these banks failing? And I'm, I'm sort of not asking about uh, sort of the, 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 the twigs or the, 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 the wood that burned. I'm asking about like what lit the match. Was it a run on the bank or just a a necessary increase cost of funding on those banks um, that, you know, they used to be paid 3% on deposits and you can't, you, you got to raise that when, when the interest rates are at, at 10%, because that I think was what happened with Silicon Valley bank. And, and now a lot of people are talking about how uh, the bank funding costs will go up, which will harm their profitability. Well, there's no doubt that the profitability of banks will be harmed if, if uh, you, you, people who uh, lend them money in banks, you know, they, they get a lot of money from depositors, but in modern banking, you go out and get a lot of market funding as well. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, you borrow, you borrow from uh, Wall Street or the bigger banks and, uh, uh, on loans. And uh, I think, uh, you know, Everyone's more cautious now. In fact, Jay Powell said recently that the greater caution that banks are going to be making now when they examine applications for loans, that in itself will help to tighten money and may help the Federal Reserve in its war against inflation. It may also uh, get us into a recession as well. I, I'm, I'm actually sort of 
suspecting that we will have a recession. It hasn't hasn't shown itself yet, but it seems to me everything is pointing in that direction. Uh, And so, um, you know, it's we'll see. But as I say, the Fed is between a rock and a hard place. And when you say you suspect a recession might be coming, why do you think that? Uh, because uh, the bankers are being more cautious. The Fed has raised interest rates a lot. Uh, and it, the Fed has almost been saying, you know, and getting some backlash, that it, it, the labor market is too tight. It wants to, you know, uh, reduce inflation by reducing the growth of wages. There seem to be shortages of labor. You know, I live a, a good bit of my life in New Hampshire, and I see help wanted ads everywhere. Uh, I'm retired, but sometimes I think, well, if they need this help, maybe I should go out and you know, apply for a job. Um, but uh, anyway, the, it is a tight labor market, and uh, uh, the Fed seems to want to loosen the tight labor market. In other words, it wants unemployment to go up a little bit to reduce the pressures of inflation. Uh so I think that that's, uh, you know, uh, the Fed almost, you know, it hopes for a soft landing, but I think uh, hope is not a strategy. Uh, and uh, it's very likely that uh, uh, they'll overshoot a little bit and, and we'll get something called a recession. Let's just hope it's a mild recession, not a deep one. But, you know, when you have big banks failing in Europe, like Credit Suisse lately, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't just focus on our situation in the United States. We've got a war going on in the Ukraine. Um, there are, uh, you know, problems with international trade. Uh, um, protectionism seems to be on the rise, and uh, the U.S. has a, you know, a kind of ongoing dispute with China about these things. Uh, so I think there, you know, if you look at the whole world situation, there may be a slowdown. You know, we're a very large economy, and we export a lot. Uh, Uh, And so that could contribute to a recession in the U.S. too. If the rest of the world has some trouble and can't uh, import from us, well, that slows our economy. Uh, So I see all these things going on, not just the Federal Reserve policy and the uh, financial problems in the United States, but around the world, uh, there are signs. And 2007 to nine was a a global financial crisis and a global recession. So- in a, in a recession, typically interest rates fall. As I learned from your book, not always, but typically they, the <laughs> interest rates you know do not go up in, in a recession. So maybe on over the short term, the the rise in interest rates uh, could could be halted. To, and uh, what is your medium term outlook on interest rates? You know, if in 1981, when the 20 year Treasury note yielded 15, uh, percent you said, hmm, probably probably going to go lower from here, and, and you were very right. Where do where do you think? you know, yields are going to be over the next decade or two. If the inflation rate doesn't show some signs of coming down, now we're talking in uh, the end of March in 2023. Uh, if the um, interest rates don't show, I mean, if, if the economy doesn't sh- show some signs of slowing, uh, then the Fed will probably have a, a one or two or three more increases in its rate. Remember, we're, we're just getting back to what in most of U.S. history would be considered normal rates. Uh, I think, you know, as a rough uh, guideline, you need to get interest rates sort of above the inflation rate in order to end the inflation. And we're we're getting there, but I don't think we're still quite there. I mean, we're, we have four to five, you know, 
four four to five percent interest rates now, and the inflation rate is still around five or six percent. So we're a lot better than we were a few months ago. But we're uh, so I suspect the you know, especially given the financial crisis, that the we'll have a, a couple more moderate increases in interest rates. Uh, but that may work to slow the economy, and let's hope we don't have uh, more banks failing. Uh, uh, but it may slow the economy in a sense that we have a mild recession. And one thing about modern recessions, apart from 2007 to nine, uh, mo- modern recessions tend to be fairly modest. You know, the 1990-91 recession was very modest recession. The 19, uh, the 2001 recession. Uh, only lasted about six months, and it was definitely a recession. But the, uh, unlike in all, almost all recessions in history, the the GDP actually grew a little bit in two thousand one over to the year two thousand. So a very mild recession. Uh, I suspect that we'll be lucky to have a, such a mild recession this time. Uh, but interest rates, well, you know, if we have that recession, we can expect them to peak out, and the Federal Reserve will, you know, then. When recession becomes its number one problem, replaces inflation as its number one problem, uh, the Fed is likely, if history's any guide, to start reducing interest rates. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code GUIDANCE10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. An inverted yield curve where short-term interest rates are higher than longer-term interest rates. Since the 1950s, it's frequently preceded a recession. Some people argue that an inverted yield curve actually causes a recession. One thing I was fascinated to lear- learn in your, your book, uh, uh, A History of Interest Rates, was that uh, sort of after 1720 up until, let's say, 1900, yield curves were frequently, that was the kind of the, ner- the norm was for them to be I- inverted. And that fascinated me because sort of mainstream thought now, at least what I'm, what I'm exposed to, says that inverted yield curve is always a sign of, of, of trouble. What do you think about that relative spread between short-term and long-term interest rates, and, and what does it sort of indicate? Well, I think, history, let me speak to the history first. The, you know, the, the reason short-term rates were often above long-term rates is that the capital markets were sort of more developed than the, the banking systems, and uh, at least in the United States, and maybe in some other countries too, that had a large national debts and the, uh, man, the governments manage their national debts. So long-term securities often had lower yields than the short-term, very short-term loans. Uh, so that was a kind of difference between the uh, development of capital markets and the development of uh, short-term lending. And we didn't have uh, uh, you know, so, such sophisticated short-term money markets as we have today. I mean, the bank loans were a basic source of short-term financing uh, in those days. And you didn't have a 
I mean, you had money markets in Britain and that, uh, you know, the uh, discounts on uh, bills of exchange and so on. But they weren't as developed as the uh, uh, longer term capital markets were. But today, I think, you know, we have very sophisticated money markets, short term commercial paper and CDs and so on. Um, so um, when you get an inverted yield curve, it just means that basically uh, it's kind of odd, but, you know, in short term interest rates are high because they're expected to be lower down the road. And basically what it means is money's a little tight right now because the Fed is fighting the inflation, but they will be successful uh, and that'll slow the economy and then they'll reduce the interest rates. So, you know, I, I have to pay uh, 4% for uh, short-term money right now, but uh, I, I really expect that, the, that, that this policy will work and therefore interest rates will fall in the next uh, uh, year or two. And... Uh, so I'm willing to accept a lower interest rate on a uh, five or ten year instrument than I am on a three or six month instrument. So it's a kind of odd thing that interest rates are high on the short short end of the curve because they're expected to be lower. A few final questions for you about Alexander Hamilton, on whose work you've you've done a, a lot of research. With all of the issues that monetary authorities, let's just say in the U.S., face right now of inflation and the banking panic, what do you think Alexander Hamilton would suggest or do if, if he were in a position of power? Let's say if Alexander Hamilton were the chair of the Federal Reserve. Um, okay, or Secretary of the Treasury again. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, Hamilton, I think Hamilton would look at our current situation and uh conclude that the United States is, is being rather fiscally irresponsible. Uh, that is, Hamilton uh, wanted to make sure that the government would discharge its debt contracts, would, would, would uh, service its debts while the debts were outstanding, and would uh, pay them when they became due. Uh, and he actually had a, a way of, uh, uh, which he talked about several times in his career, a way of making sure that this would happen. Uh, one of his great principles was that when the government borrows money, uh, suppose it wants to borrow a, a billion dollars and it has to pay, let's say, uh, 5% interest, or in his time it would have been 6%, then Hamilton would say, if you're borrowing a billion dollars, you should couple the borrowing with a tax increase or some kind of revenue measure uh, that would bring in... Uh, at least 60 million a year to pay the 6% interest on the billion you borrowed, but a little bit extra, so maybe maybe 70 million to pay uh, the interest of 6% on the billion dollar debt, plus a little bit more. And Hamilton was pretty good at financial mathematics. Uh, he was actually a descendant of the Scottish mathematician, John Napier, who invented natural logarithms. Hamilton was uh, many generations later uh, a descendant. So maybe he had mathematics in his blood. But Hamilton said that uh, that extra 10 billion on the uh, uh, 10 million on a $1 billion debt would allow you in some sum of years to retire the debt. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, in other words, Ham the main principle he had was that when you borrow money, you should take some measures to make sure that you uh, pay the you know have enough money to pay the interest on it and a little bit more so that you'll ultimately do the retire the debt. When New York built the Erie Canal, they did that. You know, they they basically increased taxes, uh, and 
eventually in state and local government in the U.S., you know, I've gone into a ballot box sometime and had to vote on whether I was in favor of issuing some bonds. And so that's responsible fiscal uh, behavior. Um, you borrow the money and you think you have a, you know, you're, you're taking some measure to make sure you can pay the interest and, and ultimately retire the debt. Uh, Congress in the United States has not done that, though. They, I think, you know, my view is that Hamilton gave us a legacy of sound uh, fiscal management, and it, it, it did so much to make the United States a, uh, uh, a great power and a trusted financial uh, uh, a government to lend money to. Uh, and Congress is kind of abusing that uh, uh, legacy of people like Hamilton, uh, fiscal responsibility. And just, just because we're so trusted, we can borrow money very easily and uh, one of the disappointments of my life is that, you know, the, the Republican Party used to stand for fiscal responsibility. The Democrats were a little looser on that. But one of the great disappointments of recent years is that the Republicans themselves seem to not care about fiscal responsibility. And that's why, you know, look, Jack, you know, 40 years ago, 43 years ago, 1980, the national debt of the United States was $1 trillion. You know, so from 1776 to 1980, we managed to run up a $1 trillion debt. Now, in like what's basically the second half of my life, <laughs> from 1980 to now, uh, we've pushed that up to 31 to 32 trillion. Uh, and it's because we have demands for spending. Some people want more government spending, other people want lower taxes. So, uh, we cut taxes, we spend a lot more, and the result is we have this huge national debt. And, and I think uh, Hamilton would be um, very disturbed, I would almost say disgusted by uh, what has happened here, how, how we don't seem to have the notions of fiscal responsibility that, that he tried to teach us. Do you think Hamilton would have been surprised that interest rates would have been so low with the American debt so large, and specifically that interest rates now are far lower now that the debt is $32 trillion than it was in 1980 when it was $1 trillion. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, that that's an interesting question, why the interest rates are so low, and they're, and they're uh, uh, except they, they, they're not as low now as they were yes. just a few years ago. I think, you know, basically the government suppress those interest rates uh, through, uh, you know, zero interest rate policies and, and they could get away with it in the last decade because the banks were holding a lot of excess reserves. But when the banks start lending, then we have an inflation problem. Um, I, you know, I, I this is, it's an interesting question why interest rates are so low. Now, there, there's a young scholar named Paul Schmelzing that's done some fundamental work, uh, a lot of additions to what you find in uh, our book on the history of interest rates, a much richer database. And he says that real interest rates have been falling steadily for the last seven or 800 years. And uh, at a time when people, you know, two or three, four years ago, when people were talking about our low interest rates, uh, being unusually low, uh, Schmelzing said, no, they're right where they should be. I mean, that you just project the trend of history and we're, they're right where they should be. Those were real interest rates, though. Um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, the, the nominal interest rates are now are moving up. Real interest rates, of course, are still low. I mean, if we have 6% inflation and 4% on a government bond, that strikes me as something like minus 2% real interest rate. Um, so, you know, real interest 
rates, interest rates are still quite low. Uh, they probably go up a little more. But you know, the, I think the world is pretty rich now. You know, there's been a lot of progress. I mean, one of the great things that's happened is that a lot of the less developed countries in the last 40 years, China being the main example, have become much richer. And there's a lot of savings in the world that's looking for uh, investment. You know, people talk about chasing yield. That's how we get into trouble. You know, Silicon Valley was chasing, Silicon Valley Bank was chasing yield. <laughs> yes. And uh, uh, it got into trouble when it didn't hedge those risks of buying those government bonds at low interest rates. Um, so I, w I would say that, you know, uh, if economic growth slows, I think there's a real a relation between interest rates and the rate of economic, real economic growth. And if economic growth slows, as many people are forecasting, uh, your interest, real interest rates may stay low, uh, and nominal interest rates will sort of depend on uh, where in, where inflation is. Um, you know, the Federal Reserve's target of two percent inflation makes me think that, you know, the interest rates might be three or 4% would be normal. And that's where we're getting to now. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, although Wall Street is worried about our high interest rates and hopes they'll go lower, uh, I think we're really getting to a, a, a much more normal situation right now. And, and maybe they'll, you know, they won't come down a lot from where they are now. They, they, they will uh, uh, stabilize at, at the values that they've climbed up to in recent years. So, you know, no one can predict the future, but all things being equal, do you think over the next few decades, the the ZERP zero interest rate policy is, is behind us, that interest rates will be, you know, two or three percent, if not higher? I, I'm thinking that's probably true. And I, I think, you know, we're, we're going to find out that the uh, ZERP policies actually cause some of the problems that we're seeing now in the financial system. Um, uh a friend of mine named Edward Chancellor has written a couple of good books on financial history, and, and the latest one is called The Price of Time, and it's kind of a discussion of how it was a big mistake to follow these very extremely low interest rate uh, policies. And, and, you know, the book came out a year ago. It was written two years ago, uh, and I think Edward Chancellor is saying now, I was predicting some of the things we're seeing right now, the financial problems of uh, uh, being caused by the low interest rate policy. So, uh, you know, the... We're living in a, a, you know, a new chapter of financial history, and we don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. You know, it's hard to predict the future. But I think when the when the smoke clears, we'll look back and say that those extremely low interest rate policies caused certain things to happen in the economy that caused us trouble later on, and maybe we should try to have a more normal structure of interest rates going forward. Wow. Yeah. Edward Chancellor's work is, uh, is, is fantastic. Well, Professor, thank you so much for being so, so generous with your time and insights. Again, uh, your book, A History of Interest Rates, uh, th this is the fourth edition. Uh, a, a lot has happened since then, another chap chapter perhaps in the, in, the, in the fifth edition. But this, is, <laughs> this really is, uh, you know, not only in my opinion, one of the best finance books of all time, but I just ob objectively realized. And, uh, you know, you, you've got to have a lot of... Uh, mental brain power folk like focused on this to read this so i can't imagine the mental brain power it took to uh to write it um and then also you've got a, a book uh alexander hamilton on finance credit and debt uh which which folks should check out professor thank you so much and thank you everyone for watching thank you pleasure to be with you jack Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. 
episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.